0: Well, it seemed to me that uh, tomorrow morning, and actually tonight, since uh, we are on the brink of Palm Sunday, as John said, that it's a perfect day or weekend to bring our series, our journey on the death of pride to an end. After all, the, the, the Palm Sunday is that day in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem, as John said, in fulfillment of what a prophet said nearly 500 years before, a prophet by the name of Zechariah, who received a, a revelation from God himself about what the messianic king would look like? Um, the messianic king that would reverse the misfortunes of Israel and also reverse the misfortunes and sins even of the world. So when he received this revelation, this is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he proclaimed and he prophesied saying this. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous, having salvation. And then the next part is ironic, at to say the least. He comes riding on a donkey, humble, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Now, again, we've heard it so many times that we, we miss the fact that that image is ripe with irony and, and appearances of contradiction, of the great king with salvation in his hands and righteous comes humble, riding on, not a, not a stallion of conquest, but a, but a beast of burden. Um, it would be puzzling at best and idiotic at worst. The idea that the great messianic king to sit on the throne of David forever and ever would come riding humble on a donkey. And 500 years after God re- revealed that to Zechariah, Jesus indeed did fulfill that. He came and he rode into Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey. He, dr- he, he rode in to celebrate Passover, and more importantly, he, he rode in to be Passover and to die. So it seems to me it's appropriate on the day in which Jesus rode in humble on a donkey to bring our journey on the death of pride to, to an end. And to do that, I wanted to reflect on Jesus himself. I like thinking of uh, Jesus, his own humility, and his, though if anyone was to be proud, it would be Jesus, because he was all that. And yet, we find in the divine person of Jesus a man of unparalleled humility. And I'm hoping that he will be and his humility will be the nail in the coffin of our own pride. Not that we won't continue to struggle with with it, but that we will see and feel and know that pride and arrogance and conceit is contradictory to the Christ we follow. And that we will endeavor each day to see pride killed in us, in our communities, in our families, and in our relationships. I'm going to begin with verse 3. Paul is going to give some instruction to us. And by the way, this passage is well known. It is some of the deepest theology in the New Testament, but it is also eminently practical. Very practical. He begins by telling this group of people, this small church in the ancient town of Philippi, who are having issues with relationships, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. I'm going to stop there. You'll notice at the beginning of verse 3 that he says, Do nothing. It's all inclusive. Not a single shred of your life should be lived out with this drive of selfish ambition, which is basically the promotion of self, to be seen by self, the aggrandizement of the self the exaltation of the self, the success of the self. He says, don't let that be your drive in anything you do. Then he goes on to basically give what would be one of the great marks of a truly Christian person, a follower of Jesus. He says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. He's giving his people and giving us a frame of thinking about people. I mean, to consider is an exercise of the mind that we are to think of others as better than we are. That goes contrary to that instinctive human desire to be better than other people, which is why sometimes we get angry when someone speaks in a condescending or belittling way because we feel slighted, because we think of ourselves as better than other people generally speaking. That's why we're so competitive in sports, because we want to be the best, don't like to be thought of as, as not as good as the next person. She's basically saying this is the way you're to think of people as superior to yourself, as better than yourself, as more important than yourself. Reminds me of a banquet that I attended about a year ago or so. I was invited to sit at a table, and there were a lot of important people. I was not one of them at this particular banquet. And you saw some big names in Fairfield who have a lot of money show up. You saw city council members show up. Um, There was a police chief showed up. It was interesting to watch the crowd revere and pay special attention to people with the names. And basically Paul is saying, listen, you are supposed to treat people, not just the ones who are important in the world's eyes, but you're to treat, treat people that you meet as, as important people. Um, you're to think of them as they're more important than you are, better than you are. And so you'll treat them uh, distinctly different. And not only will you think of them that way, but he goes on to say each of you should look not only to your own interest but to the interests of others. To look at something means to care for. It's talking about action. So not only do you consider somebody as better, but you actually treat them um, and their interests as more important than your own. That is, you're taking second place. That's what Paul is is, is telling these people to do, and it's what he's telling us to do, that's the only way that you can really achieve and experience true unity within the body or true unity within a marriage or in a family is for people to endeavor to always take second place in the relationship, the lower place. Again, a good picture that comes to mind of what that looks like for me is, is, uh, is every time that we go as a family, my, my wife and my, my kids and I go up to my mom and dad's place, um, Newcastle, Auburn area, um, we go up there, and if we're going to spend the night, my mom invariably invariably, and dad, they say, you know what? You're going to stay in our room. That's what they say. So my mom ch- changes the sheets, the bedding, and so forth, and she makes up the, the master bedroom of the house, and she says, you're going to stay in our room, sleep on our bed. And um, no matter how much we try to argue with her, no, we're not sleeping in your room. We're not taking your room. She says, no, this is the way it's going to be. And so we go and sleep on their bed, and my mom and dad blow up an air mattress, and they sleep on the floor. My mom and dad are in their 70s, and it's, that's just the way they've been, is that they treat others and the interest of others better than um, their own interest? That's, that's just the kind of people that they are. And that's very much what Paul has in mind here, is, is looking at those you come in contact with as you, you are more important than me. I'm going to think of you as more important than me. I'm going to think of you as better than me, and I'm going to treat you with that kind of care and respect. But the great example that Paul draws is the deepest, most profound example of humility and someone taking a lower place to help another person, and that is is Jesus Christ. Now, I've said it before, Jesus Christ is the center of Paul's life, the center of his theology, the center of his understanding about who God is. Here he comes right down. When he comes to a lesson on humility, where does he go? Right to the center. He goes right to Jesus, and he states some amazing things. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taken the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a terrible, brutal, embarrassing cross. In the short, amount of time from verse 6 to verse 8, you see the most amazing, the most wondrous, unparalleled descent from height to depth that heaven will ever see. What begins in verse 6 as God ends up in the grave at the end of verse 8, that is death. What begins as divine in verse 6 ends in death at the end of verse 8. The great plummet He says, who, talking about Jesus being in very nature, God, Paul was explicitly clear that before Jesus was born, he did exist and he shared and experienced the fullness of divine nature, that is, all of the divine prerogatives and, and freedoms and attributes he had before he was born. I've often wondered what it would be like to be God. And of course, we will never comprehend it. And every time we try to imagine it, we will invariably distort it. But imagine experiencing the kind of power and freedom to create a universe without limit or without expense, not even breaking a sweat, being able to say the most, to think the most amazingly complex and beautiful universe and simply saying be or willing a thought be and it is. Imagine what that must feel like or to experience, as we understand from the scripture, infinite and perpetual joy all the time. Like our joy that we experience is momentary and it's, it's always by degree and it's sometimes stronger than others but never infinite. But the Bible pictures God is infinitely happy and joyful. I can't even comprehend that. But that's what Christ experienced before He was born. is infinite joy and happiness beyond what you can ever contain. Or to experience the kind of overflowing love between Father and, and Son and Holy Spirit, constantly overflowing, never wavering, never diminishing, always going forward, always being satisfied, or having all requisite wisdom without the need for pondering or reflection. Or to be able to, as one of the psalmists says, to be able to do all that you please and be eternally perfect and happy all the time in the expression and explosion of your power. I can't even imagine that. But that, Paul says, is not something that he grasped at. Which I think what he means by saying it's not something that he grasped at means that he didn't use his own divine right Attribute, power, wisdom for his own private gain. But rather, the one who existed with all the fullness of divinity and all of the divine rights and attributes and prerogatives and all the joys and all the glories that came with this, made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. You take a look at that and realize he voluntarily and willingly did it. He wasn't forced to do it. Voluntarily and willingly, he relinquished the divine right to use his power, his knowledge, and made himself nothing. And what it means to make himself nothing is explained in the phrases afterwards. Taking the very nature of a servant, or I think a better translation would be a slave, being made in human likeness. That is, he became a slave, and what is a slave but one who, in this case, willingly and voluntarily relinquished rights to divinity, becoming a servant, which is someone who who now adapts himself and does the will of another. He surrenders his rights to the will of another, and that's precisely what he did. He became slave, taking on the form of human nature, which by itself is a mind-blowing concept, that infinite divinity bound itself to humanity, confining itself... To human hands, human feet, and a human mind, which is why Jesus could say in Matthew 24, I don't know when I'm going to come. That the presence of God that, that overflows and can't be contained by the entire universe could somehow be embodied in a person who's between five and six feet tall on one of the smaller planets in one of the smaller solar systems in a moderate-sized galaxy in the entire universe, that's what he chose to do in a way that mysteriously maintained his divinity and yet relinquished the rights to it. So you have within the scope of this, these few verses, you have the sovereign of heaven descending and becoming the slave servant Something we'll never fully understand. But what's also equally mind-blowing is who he does it for. You know, he doesn't do it for people who like him or instinctively worship him or honor the Lord, but people who, like sheep, have turned to their own way. They Manipulate the world to please themselves, oftentimes trampling on other people kind of people that love to, like parasites, feed on the destruction of others and the rumors of others and the demise of people in Hollywood. That the sovereign of heaven became the servant slave for the sake of sinful men. The sovereign of heaven became servant slave for the sake of sinful men. And that, my friends, is precisely what Paul asks of us to do at least that attitude. The attitude that is willing to subordinate oneself and relinquish whatever rights you may think you have for the sake of other people, for their benefit, as Jesus did for us. And that means not just those that we like, but even those that we may not like, or those who may not like us. If we are to wear the mantle of Jesus and represent Jesus to the world, I think it requires of us to adopt the same kind of humble love that's willing to take the subordinate position for the sake of somebody else. Willingly, voluntarily, and gladly because that's precisely what Jesus did as the sovereign becoming the slave for the sake of the sinner. That's, That's humility. And that kind of approach of day by day, moment by moment, as you see faces in the hallway at church or you're talking to somebody across the lunch table at work or you're, you're walking down the street, of seeing that person and considering them better than yourself as Jesus offered himself for our greatest interest, and that is salvation, despite the fact that we weren't great people. That that kind of approach... That kind of approach revolutionizes relationships. It really does. The logic of it is not too hard to understand, although understanding Jesus, God, becoming finite man for the sake of sinner, that I don't fully understand. But the basic logic of, in each of our relationships, taking a subordinate position, that's not hard to understand. What's hard to do is to practice It's day in and day out to take your lower position. For the sake of the other, and thinking of them as better than yourself. Think about how it would revolutionize, for example, a marriage. Can you imagine a husband sitting on a couch, watching a football game that he loves, or maybe in the middle of one of his favorite movies, and his wife saddles up next to him on the couch, and she wants to talk. You ever been watching a movie or a game, and your wife wants to talk at that moment? Imagine she saddles up and she begins to talk because she has something she needs to talk about. And can you imagine, and this is, I know, it's rare, perhaps it doesn't even exist on the planet, him pausing or turning off the television and turning and willingly and gladly and voluntarily saying, sweetheart, what do you want to talk about? You can't tell me that she wouldn't feel prized and that she wouldn't reciprocate with greater love that would be the beginning of a sweet marriage for a husband for a moment just to care more about his wife in that moment than watching the next pass on the football you know game that would be revolutionary in their relationship i think and especially if it became a pattern Or let's reverse it a little bit. Can you imagine a wife who says to her husband, sensitive that he's worn out at work and he needs some time with some good Christian brothers. He needs to talk. Maybe he needs to go out and play basketball and fellowship. And recognizing that need, she says, sweetheart, you need to go out and be with your friends. And I I want you home. I'd love to be with you. But I know right now your greatest need is to be with your Christian brothers. You need to go out and you need to talk to them and fellowship with them. So I'm going to put my needs as secondary to yours. I want you to go. That would be revolutionary in that relationship if each husband or wife was willing to say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my present need for the sake of something that's more important in your life. It would revolutionize it. Now That doesn't mean we we become doormats for people a husband or a wife or other people. I mean, wisdom has to guide us in this. But can you imagine a, a marriage that operated like that, like those two little chipmunks? No, after you. No, please, after you. No, after you. I insist, after you. That that would be fighting for second place rather than what most humans do, and that is they try to manipulate things and situations or using bad attitudes to try and get what you want. The very self-centered approach to life. This reverses the entire thing. Exactly what Jesus did, and he came, and he... Humbled himself for the needs of his people. Can you imagine teenage kids coming home that want to follow Jesus, and and they come in the door and they say, "Hey, mom, what can I do? Can, can, can I can I do the dishes or take the garbage out or how about a back rub? I probably have a coronary or a stroke if one of my kids said that. But that's that's that's." Not thinking about oneself first. Hey, I'm going to go upstairs I'm going to play my stuff and I'm going to do what I want to do. It's coming into the home and saying, how can I help? That would revolutionize families it, it, if, if people would actually practice the simple principle of Christ like taking the second place and considering other people as more important than we are. It really would make a difference. It would make a difference in a church too. To be able to resist that consumerist instinct that infects the church, where people come in saying, How are you going to serve me? How are you going to tailor the style for my preferences? Which in the end becomes about self service. It is a selfish ambition and it is vain conceit. But instead, to be asking the question when a person, when you come into the gathered community, what is it that the people need? What is it that others need? Can you imagine generations who in former times have fought over styles of worship instead of thinking privately and having their own self-interest groups, which is our culture, form a self-interest group and get your way. Go to Washington, lobby the president. If you give enough money, you'll get your way and get what you want to reverse it and say, how is it that we as an older generation can actually think about the younger generation? What do they need and what are they going to benefit from? That would revolutionize my home church. Doesn't think that way, or old home church—not my new home church. I pray, or the younger generation actually saying, "You know what? What would be beneficial for the older generation in the body of Christ? What do they need? What are their interests, and and how could we serve and uplift them?" That would be a complete reversal of what most of the time happens in the church. It very well, very well, much would create a sense of. No, after you. No, no, please, I after you. I I, I insist. church would be a much different place. I don't think we've realized just how satanic sometimes attitudes in the church can be. So self-oriented, self-absorbed, and just selfish. Instead of, as Paul said, and as Jesus demonstrated, he took the lowest place, though he was the sovereign of heaven, for the sake of helping sinful people. That is a remarkable and profound lesson of life that would revolutionize marriage, family, and a church. It's quite simple, but it requires you each day, each moment, when you look into the face of another person, to recognize and think, you're better than me, and I'm going to treat you like that. I'll tell you that's not hard, or that's difficult for me, it's not hard for me to serve the interest of my wife. I think I do a fairly decent job. That's not to tube my horn. It's just to be honest, I try hard with my wife. And she'll tell you, I think that that's true. In fact, I asked her today. "Just sweetheart, do you think I do a good job? She said, yeah, you do. I have a hard time with people that irritate me. There are certain personalities that just, and I've talked about it a couple times, a couple servants last week. That's, that's something the Lord has been hammering me, hammering me, hammering me on. Is that even the people that, that kind of grade on me, that I don't have the option, if I'm going to be a true, humble follower of Jesus, of not thinking of them better than me. But to look into the face of each person that's a brother or sister of mine, whether I like them or I don't like them, and say, what is it that I can do to help you? That's, that's a lesson to be learned by me, by all of us. And to pray that the Spirit of God would actually form that sense of, of compassion and humility within us to say, how is it that I can help you? Though you irritate me, I'm going to be more concerned about you right now than reacting about how you make me feel. It would revolutionize God's church, marriage, and the family. Well, that's the kind of the final lesson lived out by Jesus himself. And it seems to me a, a good um, preparation for us to come to the Lord's table is to be humbling ourselves and even coming before the Lord and, and asking the question where have the areas been that I have been very self-absorbed, self-centered um, very manipulative in my relationships and to confess that before the Lord and and by the grace of God resolve to repent of it it seems to me that that would be a good place to start before we come to the Lord's table so what I'd like to ask you to do is um, I'd like to lead you in a, just a couple of movements of, of prayer, that is a um, I'd like just allow the Spirit to, to reveal in your own hearts perhaps an area where you have not served the interest of a wife or a friend or areas that there are still pockets or fortresses of pride in your life. And let's ask the Lord to break us of those things. And, um, and then we're going to come and we're going to partake of the bread and the cup let me ask since uh in the scripture the kneeling position is actually a great position of humility if you would just kneel with me and let's just let's just offer ourselves up to the lord and seek him in prayer and let me let me start by just asking you to cry out to the lord and pray to the lord say lord is 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 there any area that i am now in Proud arrogance before you? Is there a sin that I'm holding on to that I think I have a right to? Is there anger that I'm holding on to that I need to relinquish? I need to relinquish the rights of my anger to you as Jesus relinquished the rights of divinity so that he could come and die for us? Is there an area of pride before the Lord that you need to confess to him? Ask him. Confess it to him. Is there intellectual pride? Are you reserving only 10% of your life and on the rest of the 90% you live on your terms and only 10% on his terms? Because that's rather arrogant for the one who gave his life for you. Perhaps right now you just need to confess it and humble yourself and say, Lord, I want you to take it all. I don't want the rights to my life anymore. I want you to take them. Pray that to him. Ask him to help you. you to pray in a different direction. I'd like you to think of names. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to you would bring people to mind where we have perhaps failed to forgive. Or perhaps we have failed to admit we're wrong because we don't want to portray weakness to somebody else. Will you bring that to our minds now and help us to humble ourselves before you and, and confess that? And resolve by grace to admit that we're wrong, to offer forgiveness, to receive forgiveness. If, 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 if we've hindered or harmed somebody else, Lord, please just show us those areas right now where we still hold on to our pride with people. It might be a husband, a wife, children someone who's hurt you and you're still holding the reins of bitterness it's time to relinquish it the right to vengeance is the Lord's not ours Holy Spirit do your work You've called us to live this standard of being subordinate to people, caring for them. Will you help us to do that? Lord, will you break us of our pride? I know I desire to see and experience the fresh fountains of grace poured out, but they don't come unless we humble ourselves before you. For you have promised that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So, Lord... May you break us all the way down, every piece and fiber of our being that wants to retain selfishness and pride and arrogance. Will you break it, please, right now? Before we come to your table, before we partake of a bread that symbolizes the broken body of the sovereign of heaven, when we take the cup, this is his blood. Oh Lord, will you fill us Remind us of your forgiveness now in the cross. Remind us that you will never let us go, that your love will never end and nothing can separate us from your love. And give us the capacity as we're holding these elements of bread and and blood in our, our hands. Give us the capacity, Lord, to trust in your forgiveness, to be humble before you. May you restore our joy, the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen. ...often aren't seen, and I don't think that's how Paul would want us to understand, it, is that as he wants Christ to be seen and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ to be seen as the church continues to build in its ministries. So, if you take that into the rest of the passage, you know, it's, he says after... Um, He says, uh, the only stone that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ, he goes, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, which are non-combustible, wood, hay, and straw, which are combustible, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what has been built survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, he's saying, be careful how you build, and if you build with Christ as a foundation, the center and the core, then you're building carefully. You're building with gold, silver, and precious stones, which are non-combustible material, and it will endure when that day comes. And the day he's speaking of is the day of judgment, the day of testing. But if in your attempt to do ministry and serve God, and let's remind ourselves that All life is worship, and all life is service to the Lord Himself. That means as we serve God in every capacity of life, if Christ remains the foundation, the center, and the core, then we're building carefully, and it will endure into eternity. We're building something that's going to last. But if we minimize or we leave out Jesus... The foundation, the center, and the core, we are now building with wood, hay, and stubble, and it will not last. That's a huge, like, wake-up call should be for, if it is for me. I don't want to spend 40 or 50 years investing my life only to have it all go up in smoke. It's not what I want. I also think it's haunting to see the thousands and thousands of people that are attracted to a preaching and teaching that is Christless and crossless, We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It makes me wonder, of all the vast sea of faces and thousands listening, how much of that is just wood, hay, and stubble because it's not laid on the foundation stone of Jesus Christ as the core and the center. That scares the living tar out of me. I'd like to know that at the end of my life, and hopefully at the end of your life, that what you invested your life in is going to last and that requires keeping Jesus as the foundation, the center, and the core, if that's indeed what Paul meant, and I believe wholeheartedly that that's what he meant. Now, practically, that means that it is absolutely imperative, and this is where it kind of breaks right down to where the rubber meets the road, that each of us in our particular areas of service and ministry, whether it's an individual, structured, unstructured, is to keep Jesus the foundation, center, and as the core of everything that we do. So if, for example, you want to start a ministry to marriage and you believe in marriage and keeping marriages together, which is a great and wonderful thing, don't make the mistake of building with wood, hay, and stubble by leaving Jesus and a cross out of it. seems to me that when Paul thought about marriage and he wanted to apply um, wisdom to marriage and give a lesson on marriage, you know where he went first, Ephesians? Brothers, love your wives as... And he goes right to the cross and right to Jesus is the paradigm for marriage. In other words, he brings it right to the cross who sacrificed himself for his bride. So it becomes a paradigm of marriage. Not only a paradigm, but it reorients one's entire thinking towards your wife or towards your husband to realize that Jesus died for her and therefore she is his. He's forgiven her all her sins, so who am I not to now forgive her? And who is she not to forgive me? It revolutionizes the way people... Think about marriage and and approach marriage is to come to it from the vantage point of the cross and Jesus. That's keep Jesus at the center of that particular ministry. Or if you happen to feel called into counseling, one of my great concerns is people getting therapy from people who are not centered on the cross. You know, we live in a very therapeutic culture. Doctor says to you, Wow, you're clinically depressed. You need therapy. What you think, okay, I need therapy. You open up the, the yellow pages and you go, boom, there's the therapist, I'll call him. And you go. And unfortunately I've had friends go into therapy better than they came out of therapy. Now don't mis- please misunderstand that I I I wholeheartedly believe God needs I shouldn't God needs I don't like the word need after God ever, but I will say that I fully believe we need trained professionally trained counselors and even trained in secular psychology i don't want to defend that right now but provided their loyalties and their deepest convictions about what really changes a person remain firmly rooted in the cross and the resurrection of jesus and the grace of god i mean don't we believe in our in our minds that it's the spirit of god that changes the heart That it's the grace of God that changes. And how does the grace come to us except through the death and resurrection of Jesus? So any really true change has to be rooted there. There are many a professional therapist who are Christian in name only with a little fish on their card. But when it comes right down to it, their fundamental presuppositions and assumptions are humanistic. And there is no power there for real change. I say that just to be very, very careful because Christ should be at the center of that. If we could have counselors that were really gifted and trained that had that loyalty there, wow, that would be fantastic. And that should be true of all ministry, whether it's men's ministry, women's ministry, is figuring out how do we bring the cross and Jesus to bear upon the lives of men in such a way that it deals with their, their addictions to pornography or sexual addictions or substance abuse. How do we do this in a way that finds its power in the cross and Jesus? It takes some thinking. It takes some thought, yes, but it's worth it because that is building, not with wood and stubble, but gold and silver and precious stones, that which will last. Even in your own devotions and Bible studies, small group, you go to small group primarily to meet with Jesus through the Scripture. If you're not doing that, you're really missing the center. I think about my own devotions, you know. Many of us are so so disciplined to just read a chapter a day and many of us don't attempt to make connections to Jesus and that to me is uh, settling for less than what What God would have for us. So, for example, if you're if you're meditating on the Ten Commandments, for your own soul's sake, will you include Jesus in your meditation on the Ten Commandments? I mean, if you just stop with meditation on the Ten Commandments and you memorize them all, I got them down. Wow, I feel spiritual now. You've just if you've really meditated on them, you've just heaped layers and layers and wave upon wave of guilt upon your shoulders. Because Paul basically told us that the law of Moses is the law of sin and death. That's what it does. It just exposes us as condemned men and women. That's what he says in Romans 8 anyway. No, I'd I'd rather come to the Ten Commandments and go, yep, I broke that one. I did covet my neighbor's house. I have worshipped money at times. I've placed my family before God, so I've worshipped my family. That I've hated somebody, and Jesus told me that constitutes murder. But, praise be to God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has delivered me from the law of sin and death through his sacrifice. He kept it when I didn't, and then he died for my infractions. And then he has given me the power of his spirit by which now I may make progress in actually obeying God with a delight and gladness, not because I am condemned. That brings a whole level of freedom and also life to your soul when Jesus becomes the centerpiece of your reflection on and devotion, Old Testament, New Testament. So, brothers, friends, church, this is a, I think, three major marks of a truly healthy, spirit-filled church. If we together, it's not just me, it's all of us, in believing this, say, yeah, that's important. That I need to humble myself love people, and seek the unity of the church. That is a sign of true maturity in a believer and a true maturity in Christ. If each of us was to grasp that and start really dealing with the conflicts, that's a sign of God's, God's health in this church. If we will seek in our individual conversations and as a church to make God the star of the show, not men, not people, not preachers, not music, not guitar players, then I think we're going to see God move in a mighty way. And, of course, maintaining Christ as the foundation, the core, and the center of the church means we will be building with non-combustible material that will enter into eternity. But it takes each of us embracing that and living it out. That's what it means to be a mature, spirit-filled, individual, and church. Father, I pray that you would make that a reality in this church not just in this church, but the people who call upon your name throughout this town. But we do pray, Father, for this church, this body, that you would give us a deep burden, a deep passion, a conviction about the unity of the church and how important it is that we would humble ourselves and love each other enough to forgive and offer and receive forgiveness and seek resolution and reconciliation. You would keep us amazed and captivated by the greatness of God that no one would steal the limelight of what you justly deserve, which is your your glory, and that you would help us keep Jesus at the center of our lives, of our church. In his name we pray. Amen.